Well, one of the things that I need to remember each week as I prepare these messages is that every week we have new people who come to Rio, and that is a wonderful thing. It's a little challenging for me because I'm terrible with names. I'm just going to let you know that up front. You know, it's, I get this sinking feeling when I walk up to somebody, and I know I should know, and I don't know. So just help me if I do that, and be gracious, I'd pray. But, but the other part of the challenge for me as a communicator is that back in January, we actually started a conversation that we're about halfway through at this point in the year. And so if you're just kind of showing up, you might feel like you walked into the middle of a movie, and you're trying to figure out who the characters are, and what the plot line is, and, you know, why are these people crying over here, because you don't cry in movies. And so... So I need every once in a while to give you more than the snippet that I generally give week by week by week to kind of help you, you know, get on the bus. I want to kind of explain again what the journey is. At the beginning of this year, we started a study of the book of Acts, and we did that for a very particular reason. We did that because we realized that led by the Spirit and the Word of God, a community with one another, those people lived in a way that we want to learn to live. They lived their lives as mission. So we established a goal, we call it life as mission, and we said, all right, we're going to learn from these people how to live life as mission, and we've defined the terms life and mission. We said that by life, we mean, first of all, every moment of our everyday lives. So what we don't mean is, God, I'm going to carve out an hour and a half on Sunday, and I'm going to give that to you because I feel cool with that. And then if I'm really all in, I'm going to carve out two more hours. And we're going to go to community group and I'm going to give that to you. And I might carve out 10 minutes here and 15 minutes there and 20 minutes here to do some personal worship. And if I'm really, really excited, then I'm going to carve out, I don't know, like another couple of hours and we're going to go serve a meal down in Hope South Florida. Or maybe we'll take the map class, which by the way would be awesome to look into becoming foster parents or whatever. It's more than that. It's waking up to the reality that every moment is mission, which as an aside infuses every moment with eternal significance, doesn't it? So we're trying to find ways to demonstrate how comprehensive life as mission is. And so we've said, all right, by life, it's every moment, but by life also, it's every category. It's just a different way of describing it. So we said marriage is mission, and parenting is mission, and business is mission, and finances are mission, and sex is mission, and ethics is mission. We've even said suffering is mission. And what we mean when we say those things is, okay, those are things that we need to do differently from the rest of the world. We need to manifest in our lives by the Spirit living together, because it's the only way we're going to be able to do it, and otherworldly wisdom that, A, works, but far more significantly than that, B, stands out for the glory of God in this world, so that when the world sees it and they come to us, And they say, all right, look, we've noticed the difference. Authentically, you are a different kind of people. What's the difference? We can say, all right, the difference isn't a what, it's a who, and the who is not me. The difference you're looking for is Christ. You see how that works? It takes and it makes everything what? Mission. So today, as we return to our study, we're going to add a category. What we're going to add is failure. We're going to come to God with that thing that, you know, that we don't really talk a lot about, with that thing that we did that right now the Spirit is going, oh yeah, you remember, with that one thing that if we could go back in our lives and change only one thing would be the one thing we would change. And if we were really honest, we'd give just about anything to go back to change. We're coming to God today and we're recognizing through His Word that, you know what? Even that is mission. Our failure or failures, really, 
our mission as well. In other words, there are things that God can take and not just forgive, but I want to pause there and say he can forgive them. And that's something I think a lot of us wrestle with. Because that one thing that the Spirit has already reminded you of, the one thing you'd change, okay, one of the things you wonder about when you're really honest is, can God forgive me for this? Because you can't forgive yourself. And I just want to point out on the front end that the blood of Christ is of infinite value, that it is powerful enough to forgive anything But see, it's even greater than that because when we take that thing and we give it to God, not just for His forgiveness, but for His use, oh, well, then He takes hold of it and He doesn't just forgive it. He puts it to use. He makes it mission. I would submit to you today that some of the most valuable things that you have to offer to God are the failures that you've made. Hang on to that. Think about that as we study today. We pick up our study today in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36, where Luke, the author of this great book, introduces us to the two primary characters in the teeny tiny story that we're going to look at this morning when he says this. He says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, I want to pause and tell you who those guys are. I know most of you know, but again, if you're just joining us. Paul here is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul planted churches all over the then known world in his day. The Apostle Paul then wrote letters to those churches, which then became incorporated into the New Testament. They're part of the Bible. They're a large part of the New Testament. They are some of the most significant writings ever authored. It is not too much to say that the Apostle Paul is one of the most significant personages, not just in church history, but in all of history. God used that man to change this world, and we today might not be here, but for him. So that's Paul, but who's Barnabas because he's less well-known? If you've been with us since January, though, you've learned some things that I think are worth rehearsing. So you've learned, for example, that the name Barnabas means son of encouragement and that it fits. It's like the perfect name for this guy because we've seen how encouraging he is and just how powerful is his encouragement. We saw the power of his, the encouragement of his generosity, for example, in Acts 4 in that church in Jerusalem. We saw the power of the encouragement of his preaching in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch at that church. And we've seen, and this is the part I want you to feel, the power of his encouragement in the life of this man, the Apostle Paul, who I will also submit to you today, probably would not become the Apostle Paul, at least as we now know him. Apart from the intervention, apart from the friendship, apart from the encouragement, of this guy named Barnabas, with whom he became one heart and one soul and one mind. Consider their relationship just from what we know. I want you to imagine how tight these guys were. Barnabas goes to Antioch. He starts preaching, right? Under the encouragement of his preaching, what happens? The church starts growing. It reaches the point where he can't pastor all these people anymore. He needs a co-pastor, so he raises somebody. No, he doesn't. He goes 140 miles because he knows just the guy he needs, and it's Paul. So he travels from Antioch to Tarsus to find Paul, and 140 miles does not seem like much to us, but that's because we drive. Walk it. And he finds Paul, and they travel all the way back. 
That's a lot of walking. That's a lot of talking. That's a lot of sharing. That's a lot of praying. That's a lot of time to bear one's souls. That's a lot of nights around the campfire. That's a lot of doing life together. Of really getting to know one's heart and and one's values and one's philosophies of ministry and all of this stuff. And just to tell you how cohesive these guys are, Barnabas brings Paul back as his equal. He doesn't make him the assistant pastor and give him the Sunday school. He makes him his co-pastor. And that's quite a statement because as we've also learned, Paul, I think by far, was the better preacher. What does that tell you about this guy Barnabas? What does it say about his humility, about his character, about his kingdom-mindedness, about his God-centeredness? I think it speaks volumes upon volumes. I'll tell you frankly, that almost never happens. But what does it tell you about his trust level with Paul as well? One heart, one mind, one soul, one passion, one mission. These guys are tight. And God so blesses their ministry, they co-pastor there for a year, that there at Antioch, those people were the first people in all of recorded history to be identified and actually called Christians. We've seen this. It means Christ people, Christ ones, those whose lives so clearly manifest the reality that they follow this one called Christ, that the pagans in their city started to give them His name. That's effective ministry. That's an amazing thing. But there's more than that. After about a year, they get wind of the fact that there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, Uh uh-oh, because the Christians there are going to be suffering. So they collect up from the Gentiles. This in itself is a testament to their pastoring there because the Gentiles have been marked off by the Jews, and these are Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, for thousands of years as unclean. So how helpful would you feel toward those folks naturally? But there's something supernatural going on. They take up an offering, they collect up this financial aid, and Paul and Barnabas go all the way to Jerusalem together, this time 350 miles. A lot of walking, a lot of talking, a lot of campfires, man. And they deliver that aid and come all the way back the same way. A lot of time together. They did life and ministry really really, really well, so well that God Himself, through His Spirit, said to that church in Antioch, I want you to set these two guys apart, and I'm going to make them the first Christian missionaries in history. And in fact, that's what they did, and they went off on the first Christian missionary journey in history. And what a journey it was. It was full of success and failure, joy and sorrow, highs and lows, ups and downs, acceptance and rejection. Unbelievable miracles and unbelievable hardships. At one point in that journey, Paul was stoned by an angry mob and left to die. As an aside, what does adversity do to people? It either tears them apart or it forges them together in a way that nothing else can or will. Well, that's what it did for these guys. It forged them together, and they went city by city and planted church after church very, very successfully, and they came all the way back to their happy church in Antioch, all jacked about all the things that God had done, only to arrive and then to have their whole ministry questioned by some Christians from Jerusalem who had come and said, hey, look, it's nice that all these Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus and everything, but they're not really saved unless they get circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And so what did Paul and Barnabas do? They're warriors, right? And they're warriors together. 
Shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, back to back, they once again took up a fight, this time a theological fight, which took them another 350-mile camping trip to Jerusalem and another 350-mile camping trip back. And it was a happy trip back. And here's why. Because there in Jerusalem, their whole ministry was validated as the gospel was made clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus did it all, and he's the only one who can do anything sufficient for the Father. They come back to their happy church where they take up their co-pastoring again until the story that we reach today. Today it all comes undone. Today these two guys who are legendary, they are titans of the faith of Christianity. These two guys who seemed like they were inseparable and could together get through anything All right, today they come apart completely. For Luke says this, Acts 15, beginning in verse 36, he says, And after some days, the apostle Paul said to Barnabas, To whom his soul was knit, now get this, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and let us see how they are all doing. So what is he saying? He's going, hey, we did this really successful trip. I'm thinking we ought to retrace our steps, stop in at all of these churches, see how they're doing, help them out, do whatever we can to continue to foster the work of God in these cities. And Barnabas is like right on, Great idea. I was thinking the same thing. My bags are already packed, and so are the bags of my cousin Mark, because I'd like to bring Mark along. Here's the problem. They brought Mark along on the first trip. And at about stop number two, Mark said, guys, I think I'm out. I'm done. I've had enough. This is not for me. And he bailed on them and took with him everything that they had been counting on him to provide for this journey, which is not a trip to the beach. This is not a vacation, and they're asking Mark to carry the towels. This is a risk-your-life SWAT team, Green Beret, Navy SEAL mission. And Mark flunked out of the Navy SEAL program, spiritually speaking. So now Barnabas wants to take him again. And Paul's thinking, look, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, now it's on me. Been there, done that, not doing that again. Look, if you want to take Mark to the beach, we can, you know, we can go to the beach together, and I'm cool with that. He's a great guy and everything. But I'm thinking Mark needs to find his thing and do his thing in a different way in the church. Like maybe Sunday school would be good for Mark. Let him teach that. You know, let him do some visitation for us. Let him, let him feed the homeless in our city. But don't ask him to come on this life and death journey with us again. We, we, we counted on him and he failed us. And you're his relative for crying out loud. And he failed us. But that's the issue. Luke says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, who was his cousin. But Paul thought it best not to take with this with them, this one, and here's his objection, who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so, of course, since these guys are of one heart and one soul and one mind and one passion and one mission, they just find a way to work it out. I mean, since these guys are titans of the Christian faith and, and I mean, just, you know, wow, spiritually mature, they... It's okay, right? I mean, they're able to negotiate some kind of agreement, like a mediation is called or something. I mean, and they figure it out, don't they? 
so they can go out and ministry together and continue this amazing partnership for the God. No, none of that. They dig their heels in and they split. Luke says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that Paul and Barnabas, even those guys, separated from each other. And as far as we know anyway, they never did anything together again. And to my mind, that's a failure either on the part of Paul, who's this preacher of the gospel. And what is the gospel? It is a gospel of forgiveness, fundamentally. It's a gospel of second chances and of 22nd chances, of an 1,022nd chances and in a million and 22nd chances. And in my case, I don't know, six or eight million and 22nd chances or billions or you get the point. So what's up with that? Or maybe it's on Barnabas. I'm quite sure that when Mark dropped out of the mission, it was scandalous. Almost, but not quite as scandalous as this split. Everybody in Antioch knew about it. Everybody in the church in Jerusalem knew about it. When he left, he didn't even go back to Antioch for shame. Probably he went back to Jerusalem, which is where he was originally from. Not to the church that sent him out, but to a different church. And no doubt the word spread. And don't you think that everybody was going, Barnabas, what is your problem, man? You're just weak toward your cousin? Don't you get it? The math's not hard on this. Give him Sunday school or whatever. But Navy SEAL? I think he failed out of that program. And what's fascinating is that Luke doesn't comment on any of it. He doesn't present it in such a way as to take sides at all. It's not his point. He just presents and records the failure in such a way as to not take a side. And he does that so that he can show us what God does with the failure. Because here's the point. Even our failures are mission. Even they are things that God can take and not just forgive, though he can and don't miss that. But he can take them and not just forgive them. He can use them when we bring them to him not only for his forgiveness, but then even for his use, which is exactly what happens. These guys butt heads. And then Luke says at the end of verse 39, he says, So Barnabas left Paul behind and took Mark with him on his own missionary trip, is the point, and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed with him on his own missionary trip, with both trips, I think is the point, having been commended by the brothers at the church there at Antioch to the grace of the Lord. And whereas Barnabas took Mark and went off to Cyprus, Paul took Silas and went off through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so then what did God do with this failure? I mean, the first thing at least is obvious. He sent out two missionary teams instead of one. The math on that's pretty easy too, isn't it? That's a good thing. But it's more than that. Because Mark came through. Mark made the most of his trip. Mark, through his repentance, as demonstrated and manifested by a willingness to be a Navy SEAL for Jesus and really and truly to front line it and risk his life with his cousin Barnabas, who gave him the shot, Man, he became a very faithful missionary, and he became incredibly useful, and not just to Barnabas, ironically, but down the road a ways for Paul. 
It's fascinating. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul is writing this letter. He's writing it in prison, right? So then he tells everybody in the letter who's sitting there suffering for Jesus with him in prison. Guess who's there? Mark. Barnabas redeemed Mark for Paul. In Philemon, he's writing this letter in verse 23. He's talking about who's doing ministry with him, Mark. In 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy and he says this in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, I want you to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is not just useful, he is very useful to me for ministry. Wow. So God used this to redeem Mark's whole career, didn't he? So it's two missionary teams in Mark's whole career. But it gets better than that because Mark was made useful not just to Paul. He became useful to Peter who becomes the source for the most part for the gospel that Mark wrote. You might have heard of it. It's called Mark. As in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You mean this guy wrote one of the gospels that endures and speaks to God's people and will speak to God's people profoundly until Christ comes? Yeah. Well, that's kind of a big deal. He would never have had that opportunity. And by the way, what is the overarching theme of that gospel? It is one of failure and repentance and restoration. Now, how do you think that God developed a heart in that man for that message? Do you think maybe it was through his failure and his repentance and his restoration? Because I'm going to go with yes on that one. Even our failures are mission. God in His wisdom, God in His power, God in His grace can take our failures and not just forgive them. That is glorious and great enough, but it's greater and far more glorious even than that. He can take them and use them. And in using them, redeem them. Make them things that you look back on and go, my goodness, you know, if I could go back, I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't. If I could go back and change that one thing, I would change that one thing. I would. But boy, I see how God has used it. How God has redeemed it. How God has brought good out of it. Some of the most valuable things that you have to offer to God are your failures. But you have to offer them, don't you? Remember when I called my dad and I said, you know, I think that the Lord is calling me into ministry. And um, after the paramedics arrived at his house and revived him with the defibrillator machine and smelling salts. Actually, he did laugh, though, I will say that. He thought that was funny initially. I thought he said something really insightful. He said, you know, he said, Tom, I think that that in the end, it will have been a good thing because God will use it for good, that you really kind of took a different road to the pastorate than most. You know, that you didn't do everything right, that you didn't live the perfect life, not that any of us do, not any pastor, believe me, but you know what I mean. You know, you did things that most of those guys maybe don't, and, and, and you didn't go straight into seminary. You know, you, you were a lawyer. I mean, you can imagine the corrupting factor of that, right? For like 10 years, I mean, good grief, if Jesus can save an attorney. 
The blood is truly powerful, man. He said, here's what I foresee will happen with all of that. You'll be able to relate to people in a way that maybe you otherwise couldn't, and people will be able to relate with you in a way that maybe they otherwise couldn't. And that doesn't mean that, you know, it's great that I did all that stuff, and there aren't things I wouldn't go back and do different. If I had all to do differently, I would do a lot of things differently and be spared a lot of consequences as a result. We're not called to go out and sin like the devil, you know, so we can glorify Jesus. Paul speaks directly to that. And he says, may it never be. But neither are we to be lost in hopelessness and despair and look back on our past and assume that it disqualifies us for serving this Christ. When in fact, this Christ takes those things and says, oh, well... It qualifies you to serve me in a different way. And it's a no less powerful way. So I think some of the greatest resources I have are some of the blunders I've made, but I think some of the greatest resources I have too are some of the blunders you've made. It's some of your failures. And I'll I'll give you examples, okay? When somebody comes to me and they say, you know, my son or my daughter is like just lost in addiction and we've done this and we've done that and we've had this help and that help and I feel like a total failure as a parent. I have no idea what we're going to do. I don't even know if they're going to be alive in, you know, six months from now. And, And those things happen. I can lead them to Christ, the healer, the redeemer, the forgiver. I can offer them help, but usually they have all the resources figured out know more about it than I do, usually. But here's what else I can do. I can give them the name and the phone number of a couple in our church, a few couples in our church, who have been there and who have done that and who have come to me and said, look, when you come to, or somebody comes to you with that story, you know that's our story. And God has brought us through that story. You give them our name and number because this is how God redeems what we've been through. It's how He makes sense of our suffering. It's how He uses our failures our struggles. I talk to people sometimes who are so depressed that if they're really honest, they just wonder, I mean, is life even worth living? Christ says life is worth living, guys. He can redeem despair and hopelessness. And I offer Christ and His gospel, and I offer professional help, which I think He uses. It's a means to deliverance. But I've got names and numbers. Oh, I've got a guy you need to talk to. Here's his name. Here's his number. And here's why I know that. Because he came to me. I was part of that. I know what the journey was. And he came to me with his wife and said, okay, listen, we're on the other side of that now. By the grace of God. And we realize, hey, you know, God might actually want to use this. So when somebody comes to you with our story, send them to us because that's how God redeems this. It's how he uses our failures. I've had some real honest conversations with people over the topic of abortion. Like, whoever talks about that? And why not if it's okay? Because everybody knows it isn't. And it is so personal. And it is so painful. And it is so hurtful. And it is so prevalent. So prevalent. You want to talk about a sin that we look at and go, can God forgive me for this? You know what the answer to that is? Yes. Absolutely can. 
And there are courses and classes and all of this stuff led by people who have been there and done that, and I offer them. But I've got women in our church, and they've come to me and said, hey, this is my story, and God's brought me through this journey. Give them my name. Tell them my number. And let me speak hope to them. There are a lot of people looking at pornography. Not like a few, okay? A lot. Statistics indicate that about age 10, boys start looking for it on their own. I watched a video, I think it was last week, by a scientist, secular video, and they're talking about the addictive properties of pornography. They said it's actually more addictive than cocaine. More addictive, not less. It is a major issue, and it is as big an issue in the church as it is outside. Sorry, but the statistics don't lie on those kinds of things. So here's another one. It's kind of like, well, who wants to talk about that? If we don't talk about that, we're crazy. We're sticking our heads in the sand, and we're not being real with ourselves or with each other. It is a big issue. And there's a whole group of guys in this church some of whom are my very best buddies around here. This is their story too. And they meet in recovery. And here's the message. Tom, listen, when somebody comes to you and this is their issue, send them to us. This is how God redeems what we've been through. This is how God takes something that is, I don't want to admit it. It's kind of humiliating, right? (laughs) we all have things that would be humiliating. And he uses it. He uses it. He uses it for his glory. Look, even our failures are mission. They're things God can take and not just forgive you for, though he can. Isn't that awesome? But it's more awesome because he can use them when we come to him and give them to him, not just for his forgiveness, but for his use. When we care more about him, about people, about glory, his glory, and about his mission than we do about saving face. And we're finally willing to get real with one another and say, okay, this is my sin and I need help. Or this was my sin, I've gotten help. And as embarrassing as it may feel to me, though it ought not to, here's my name, here's my number. When somebody comes to you and says, this is my story, give that to them. I want them to know because that's how God redeems what I've been through. Some of the most valuable things that you and I have to offer to God are not our successes. They're our failures. And that's a pretty awesome message. So I close with this. What's your failure? And chances are you're not going to have to give a lot of thought to that, okay? As soon as I said, hey, we're going to talk about our failures, you were like, oh, great. Because you knew what it was. Don't you think that's God's spirit? Don't you think that's the spirit going, look, you know, we've been trying to have this conversation and every time I bring it up, you run out the door, but now you would be seen. So it would be a little awkward. We're going to have that conversation today. What is your failure? And what are you going to do with it? 
Are you going to deny it? Are you going to suppress it? Are you going to indulge it? Or are you going to confess it and truly repent of it? Bring it to Christ and say, this is what this is. And I need your forgiveness. And I need your spirit. And I need some people, (laughs) some names and numbers. I need some help. So that one day, having been delivered and healed, I can then come to you and say, all right, and here it is now. You you made the story, Lord. It's actually yours. So what do you want to do with it? Here's my name and number. Sign me up. I think that's the call of the gospel to each one of us today. So consider it. Let's pray. Lord, we are praised. We praise you that we have not been left hopeless. And neither have we been left lonely. We've not been left hopeless in our sin for which there is a remedy. The blood of Christ. By which we may be made clean, by which we may be made new, by which we may be brought before a holy Father. Irrespective of what we've done and be received as a holy son or a holy daughter. Lord, you fill us with your spirit. You grant to us community, your people. We're not meant to come together once a week to hear a message, but but to join together as family with whom we can be honest, with whom we do not have to hide. Lord, make us not to hide but to experience the freedom that is ours through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the work of His Spirit, through real repentance, through real relationship, through real honesty, and through Your real Spirit. Lord, do these things. Reclaim us and make us Yours. And then, God, take the story that You write with us And make us a name and number on a list. Bring to us people who are suffering the way that we've suffered. Who have failed maybe in the ways that we have failed. Who are struggling with the things with which we have struggled. Who are in a darkness that we know by experience. And whom we can bring to light. Do these things for your glory. For the good of your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.